This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. It's been a long time since we've talked about Thomas Merton on this program, and I came across a new book recently that I just had to share with you. Many people know the late Father Merton from his poetry, his encouragement of people who live outside of the monastery to become contemplatives, his spearheading dialogue with Buddhists, and I would assume many are aware of most of his great influences, people such as Francis of Assisi, Teresa of Avila, Meister Eckhart, the Buddha. But I suspect that most don't know what a Dylan freak he was. I certainly didn't until I read The Monk's Record Player. This is a fascinating look at two of the 1960s most iconic men. In it, we see that so much of what made Merton Merton in that era was to be found between the grooves of Columbia albums rotating in his monk's cell. And with me today in studio is the author of the book, The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. His name is Robert Hudson. He lives here in the Grand Rapids area. He is a recognized Bob Dylan scholar, a member of the International Thomas Merton Society, a veteran editor who works at Zondervan, and he is here with us today. Robert Hudson, welcome to Common Threads. Thank you so much, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. Certainly. Um, I mentioned, or I asked the question just, just before uh, we started here off mic, that you're from Zondervan. Uh, you are an editor. You're a senior editor there. Uh, this is not a Zondervan book, though. This is published through Erdman's. Can you tell us a little bit about why this isn't through Zondervan and why it is through Erdman's? Oh, that's a good question. I have uh, several other books, three of which are with Zondervan, and they're more specifically focused toward the uh, Christian market, more the uh, kind of evangelical market. Erdman's, I think, uh, not to say anything negative about Zondervan, but Erdman's uh, has a special interest in spiritual history, um, uh, theology, general culture. So I think that's uh, that's really what inspired me to take it to Erdman's. I had an excellent editor there and was really pleased. It's actually the second book I did with Erdman's. The first one was a uh, modernization of a book, uh, an Elizabethan prayer book by Thomas Decker, if you remember him. The Shoemaker's Holiday was the great play that he wrote. He was mm. a contemporary of Shakespeare's. So that was the first book I did with Erdman's, and uh, they liked that, and uh, we did a second one. And... You say in your bio that you are a Dylan scholar. How, how does one become a Dylan scholar? <laughs> I think the the larger term is a Dylanophile. Um, I've loved Dylan since uh, middle school. Um, I helped uh, author David Dalton. I don't know if you know him. He wrote a well-known biography of Dylan called Who Is That Man? In Search of the Real Bob Dylan. And a mutual friend got us in touch with each other. He needed uh, information, discographical information, and I have a, I've compiled myself uh, over a 1,200-page discography of everything I can find that Dylan ever recorded. 
And so he borrowed that as well as some of my uh, stock of uh, vinyl bootlegs and uh, old Dylan albums. Um, so he was he was very uh, he was very delightful and very encouraging. And he ended up writing the foreword to this book, for which I'm very pleased. He was a a founding contributing editor to Rolling Stone and a delightful delightful character. Uh, you write that Merton and Dylan were not so much a series of contradictions as they were the sum of contradictions they embody. Uh, that That's uh, fairly close to the beginning of the book, and I have to admit that it kind of sounded like lyrics from my back pages. <laughs> what what were you trying to say? I'm, forgive me. Sure. I, 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 I meditated on this statement, and I, I believe there's something profound in there. I just can't pick it out. If you look at Dylan and you look at the stages he's been through, he can, within two years, move from the French symbolist surrealism of Blonde on Blonde and Highway 61 to the Johnny Cash-like Nashville skyline, both of which are very much a part of who Dylan is. Uh, His soul is both French symbolist and Johnny Cash. If you look at Thomas Merton, who becomes a monk and longs to be a solitary hermit, and number one discovers that that's impossible because the more famous he became, the more visitors he had. But number two, he realized that being a solitary hermit meant uh, that he became, uh, he found a new solidarity with the entire world, which is kind of interesting. And that's why he, that's why he really felt he needed to live alone so that he could actually love all people more. So it's a, it's a contradiction People ask, why in the world would anybody want to live alone as a hermit? What good does that do anybody? Merton felt he could pray for the world, and in a beautiful, beautiful passage um, in one in his diary, he says that he lives alone. The hermits live alone because where else can they find a foothold to climb out of the wreckage of the world and, if all goes well, to pull up the rest of the world after them? It's a beautiful image of of the hermit climbing out of the wreckage of the world. And this is, of course, right after World War II. When there was such an influx of men entering the monastery. Absolutely. After after World War II, yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting when I think of that image of him having that epiphany of, of how much he loved the world and then how much more seclusion he wanted uh, and and I know that he was uh, a fan of peanuts. Uh, it reminds me, I believe it was Linus who said, "I love humanity. It's people I can't stand." <laughs> it might have been Lucy, but I think it was Linus. Uh, uh, you know, can we really love people in the abstract? Yeah. Uh, that's a rhetorical question, but clearly he felt he could. He felt he could. He actually, in 1958, had a revelation not unlike the revelation of the Christian mystics of John the Divine, John of the Cross or uh, uh, St. Teresa of Avila. He was walking on the streets of Louisville, crowded, crowded with people, um, and all of a sudden he was struck with this revelation that he loved everyone that was walking by him. And there is even a plaque in downtown Louisville now, one of those brass historical markers, that says, uh, on this spot, on this corner, at such and such a date, Thomas Merton had his revelation that uh, he wanted to seek solidarity with the entire world. And that really became the turning point when he began writing about more social 
issues uh, in the late 50s and the 1960s, which, of course, are some of the most influential writings in American political protest, uh, the anti-war and the anti-Vietnam movements, and uh, some of the most important documents in uh, American political writing. You know, it's interesting when we think about when we think about the monastery, we think about a hermit, we think about prayer and meditation, and of course the labor that monks often do to provide for themselves, uh, to provide for the greater community, and, and all of that. I I seem to get the sense that in many monastic communities they they don't have privy to a tremendous amount of outside information. They don't have privy to a newspaper, television, etc. And here we see that Merton had tremendous access, and he had a record player. (laughs) (laughs) And he wasn't just playing Gregorian chants now, was he? Yeah. Do do we have any sense of of, uh, the rule of his monastery? Well, we uh, do know that the Trappists... uh, People have this tendency to think that the Trappists have a vow of silence, which is not entirely true. They are said to esteem silence, and they try to cultivate an atmosphere of silence. But uh, uh, they do not have to be completely silent. Now, of course, when Merton moved in 1965 to a hermitage outside the walls, he was living completely alone. He would go up for mass and a meal every day to the monastery. But he was completely alone. Um, it's kind of an interesting story how he ended up with the the records and the record player. The choir master at the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Merton was, was one of the key figures uh, after Vatican II in bringing about the new English liturgy for the Catholic Church. The choir master, Father Chrysogonus, was a, uh, a well-known composer, liturgical composer. He ex- uh, Chrysogonus experimented for a while with folk music forms. Of course, before then, he had only written uh, plain chant, uh, the medieval plain chant style. But he thought he would try jazz and little folk and little rock. So he collected just a handful of records, one of which was Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. Merton had an operation in 1966 in March, and as part of his recovery, Chrysogonus kindly brought him some records, and uh, among which was Joan Baez's first album and Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. And it knocked Merton out. He uh, couldn't believe it. When he finally moved back after the operation full-time to the Hermitage, he requested to have a record player in the Hermitage, and uh, he listened to music. That That's fascinating. It is. <laughs> uh, and... What about, what did he see in Dylan that that blew him away so much? This is fascinating because a lot of people, even one reviewer that I think did not even read the book, a lot of people would assume that the anti-war, anti-nuke protest movement would have brought them together. Dylan, of course, early in his career was uh, very involved in uh, anti-war songwriting, topical protest songs. Merton had written a lot on the topic. But that is not at all what brought Merton uh, and Dylan together, or at least converted Merton into a Dylan fan. What it was was uh, Merton loved the French symbolists. He loved the anti-poets of Latin America. 
Uh, he loved the beat poets, all of whom were people that Dylan himself was reading and emulating in his music. Uh, of course, a lot of people have pointed out the influences of André Breton, Verlaine, and Rimbaud in uh, Dylan's uh, symbolist music of that middle period there. Merton felt that even that was a protest of its own, a protest against culture, against the larger systems of, of oppression. He viewed all of Dylan's music um, as protest music, uh, just of different kinds. So we've talked about uh, Merton for a little bit. Let's let's talk about Mr. D. Uh, some some background. Uh, he he's from Hibbing, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Zimmerman was his uh, real name. And it's fascinating to think that he became this this poet extraordinaire, this this laureate, because he was just a, it seems like he was just a rock and roller. He was just a guy who could only play piano in the key of C and <laughs> got some gigs. Uh, uh, w- any idea of how he became so powerfully influenced by such uh, such literate people. It's one of those mysteries of, I think, artistic history, of cultural history, how Dylan just, with a meteoric rise, became who he was. I think the key is what Dylan himself said in an interview in, uh, I think, 1965. Somebody asked him, who are your influences? And his response was, um, everything, man. Just open your eyes and your ears and you're influenced. If that doesn't summarize Merton's philosophy of life as well as Dylan's philosophy of life, I don't know what does. They were people who were open to life and allowed every minute to be formative. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Robert Hudson, He's the author of The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and The Perilous Summer of 1966. You know, it's, what's fascinating about, about Dylan, he has been, continues to be such a chameleon. Uh, I don't know how many phases. Have you ever counted the phases? It'd be hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the um, scrappy Greenwich Village acoustic poet, the guy who started getting electric, uh, a little bit more sensuous in his music, uh, the, the country and Western guy, the, the evangelical Christian, the Jew. I, I mean, there's just so much. And someone who's studying him, studied him as much as you have, Robert, do you ever get the sense that he's playing us? That's a good question. I don't think so. I think he likes to play a character who acts like he's playing us. But for a man who has toured constantly since 1988 on what's famously called the never-ending tour, which would, I think, were up to over 2,000 concerts since 1988, uh, that's a man who loves what he's doing. If you don't really love the music, I don't think you keep doing it. I think he's almost mystified by where his songs come from, as any of us are. Um, A friend of mine, a professor here at Grand Valley, says that the amazing thing about Dylan is that we tend to put him up on a pedestal and uh, think of him as this great artist, which, which he is. But as my friend puts it, he's just this guy that writes these amazing songs. 
And I think that's a, that's a wonderful way of looking at it. He's just this, just this guy that writes amazing songs. When he converted to evangelical Christianity in the, in the seventies, uh, were you identifying in that, that same group at that point? I certainly was. Yeah. So how did you feel about that? Did, did it did it thrill you, or did you go, oh, geez, either either Christianity is going to get ruined or Dylan's going to get ruined? <laughs> <laughs> in in a sense, I thought, um, of course, that makes perfect sense. There was so much religious language in his early folk phase, in his uh, electric phase, and in his country phase, of course. He was close friends with Johnny Cash, who, of course, had a huge evangelical conversion of his own in 1968 after attempting suicide um, and after spending time in, in jail for uh, amphetamines. And uh, I, my response was, of course, that makes sense. Why didn't I see it coming? <laughs> I have the feeling that Merton would have felt the same way. I wish Merton could have been alive to see that moment uh, because I don't know what Merton would have thought, but I have the feeling he would have said, well, of course, Dylan's always been a seeker, a spiritual person that has been looking for some some truth of some kind, and it makes perfect sense. Did he ever ultimately say, "Okay, I'm done with that," or or did uh, it just roll into another phase and never talk about it? Probably on the surface, it's more like another phase, and he didn't like to talk about it. I, I was amused by one interviewer. Um, oh, in the mid-80s, maybe early 90s, who pressed Dylan about, you know, are you still a Christian? Are you still a Christian? And uh, Dylan said, uh, how come everybody asks me that? Nobody asks Billy Joel whether he's a Christian. And I wish the interviewer had had the presence of mind uh, to say yes, but Billy Joel didn't write Gotta Serve Somebody and uh, When He Returns and uh, some of those songs that, that Dylan wrote. So... Uh, I think he doesn't like to talk about it. Uh, I think he wants to keep it private. I have noticed, however, in even the recent albums, that the religious language has transformed in Dylan's songs, but it's still very present. Um, Is it more Jewish? I'm not even sure it's more Jewish. I think it's more apocalyptic. A lot of end times imagery, curiously enough, linked with themes of love, <laughs> his love songs, tend to have these grand apocalyptic visions, uh, you know, driving until the wheels fall off, like in uh, Tangled Up in Blue, and some of those kinds of things, where the religious language is really involved with uh, kind of global catastrophe. It's interesting. Dylan, to the best of my knowledge, and please correct me if, if I miss something here, uh, but unlike a lot of his contemporaries, I don't think, including Merton here, I don't think he ever took a trip east. Uh, you know, he was good friends with the Beatles, in particular George Harrison. Uh, and, the, you know, there were just so many people who were his contemporaries, his professional, his peers, who started investigating Hinduism and Buddhism. And to, to the best of my knowledge, he never went down that road. Am I, am I correct there? Not that I can think of. He, and of course, the 75, 76, uh, was good friends with uh, Allen Ginsberg, who shared a lot of uh, Eastern Buddhism. And in another sense, I think Dylan gets a lot of that from his Judaism, because when you come right down to it, the uh, Judaism is an Eastern religion, if you go back far enough in history. And I think he picks up a lot from the Kabbalah. Um, I think he does have some imagery from from that. 
Um, he That's does, what I when I when yeah. I when I asked about more Jewish a little earlier. Yeah. That I was actually going in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, and I think he is interested uh, in world literature. He's read widely. Uh, I think he has referenced at some point that he's read the Quran and the Tao Te Ching. Uh, of course, he refers in the song "Idiot Wind" to uh, uh, the I Ching. Uh, talks talks about going through the I Ching. Um, which told him that there might be thunder at the well, which I think is a wonderful, uh, wonderful image. So uh, I think he does have some minor influences, but uh, it all comes together. I think he really allowed himself to be influenced by everything and everybody. So the title of your book, The Monk's Record Player, uh, uh, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and The Perilous Summer of 1966. Let's, Let's talk about what happened in 1966. There I'm referring uh, largely to the biographical um, events in Merton's and Dylan's lives. Merton, in March of 1966, uh, had to go to the hospital for a spinal fusion. There he met a young student nurse who was less than half his age. She was in her early 20s. He was in his early 50s. And they fell in love. They... Um, had a number of illicit phone calls, illicit meetings, uh, exchanged letters through friends, uh, which of course was completely forbidden in the monastery. But at the same time, this is precisely at the same time, Merton is listening to Dylan. I remember I flash back to my high school years, my own adolescence, um, and the girlfriends I had in high school. Um, and Dylan meant so much to me, his his love songs and sometimes his angry songs when I broke up with my first high school girlfriend. I listened to Blonde on Blonde at high volume, and that was very cathartic. (laughs) And I think Merton went through somewhat the same thing, and uh, I'm not sure it's unfair to say that his his crush, his uh, brief affair with the student nurse, was uh, had an element of adolescence to it as well. At the same time, in uh, July of 1966, um, Bob Dylan had his famous or infamous motorcycle accident the extent of his injuries is still to be determined. Uh, there's a lot of argument about that. Um, what's clear from the motorcycle accident is that Dylan really was tired of being on the road. He was, of course, uh, drug addicted at that point and uh, having problems with alcohol. If you've seen any of the films of his 1966 tours, um, he looked skeletal at that point. So it was a turning point for both of them at about the same time. We just have a few minutes left, but uh, to delve a, a bit deeper, do are we reasonably certain that this relationship uh, between uh, uh, Merton and the nurse was physically consummated? Is that is that a foregone conclusion, or is that speculative? Uh, no, I think in fact the weight of the evidence is that it was uh, not consummated. Uh, I think there was, if I can be blunt, I think there was heavy necking. Mm-hmm. But I think they were both very conscious of Merton's vows of celibacy, and uh, I think they were able to stop short. According to Merton's own journals, um, he talks about the frustration of having seen Margie and how serious the temptations were, but that he was able to avoid uh, consummating the relationship sexually. So um, I can't. You can't really call it platonic, and Merton hated that word anyway, because uh, I think it was... Yeah, uh, why? What's the matter with that word? Well, I think Merton didn't like it because uh, um, he felt that their relationship really was uh, a unity. It was not a friendship. It really was a uh, a union of souls. 
Um, so I think that's why he, I think he felt that platonic implied that they were just great friends um, and had no sexual attraction. But there was a great sexual attraction there. Uh, in these closing moments, are you on a book tour? Oh, I am on an interview tour. I certainly am, and I've uh, spoken at a couple of conferences about this already, which has been a lot of fun. Ah, and, and the book is being received well? It is. Uh, I just had a very nice review in Commonweal. A professor there uh, reviewed the book very favorably. And it's gotten, no, oh, a dozen favorable reviews already. I've been very pleased. Oh, excellent, excellent. And if people are uh, interested in your uh, in, in your other works and this one as well, uh, website contact information. What I would you give send us? them to Amazon and just look up Robert Hudson, and uh, you'll find my other books. I have seven books out now, and an eighth coming out soon. And unfortunately, my web developer is still working on my Robert Hudson books website, but that should be up within a week or two. Is it something that was up and isn't up now, or is this going to be brand new? This is brand new. Ah, wonderful. Well, Robert, we are to the end of the wire for this week, but we would love to continue this conversation next week, if you'd be so kind. I'd love it. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Robert Hudson. He is the author of The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and The Perilous Summer of 1966. Please join us again next week here on WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Robert Hudson. He is the author of The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and The Perilous Summer of 1966. In it, we learn about Thomas Merton, the most renowned religious hermit of his time, and that he was an ardent Bob Dylan fan. Merton described himself as addicted to Dylan's music. After hearing Blonde on Blonde, he declared, One is not curious about Bob Dylan. You are either all in or all out of it. I am in to this new stuff. 
Hudson focusing on Merton the poet rather than spiritual teacher shows that Merton's poetry in 1966 was wholly influenced by Dylan's music. That summer was a time of profound personal crises for both Merton and Dylan. Both men suffered physical and emotional trauma at about the same time, and their lives radically changed direction as a result. For Merton, Dylan's music was therapeutic after an affair with a young nurse that nearly cost him his vocation. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, Robert Hudson. Let me tell tell you a little bit about uh, Robert before we bring him on. He is a recognized Bob Dylan scholar, a member of the International Thomas Merton Society, a veteran editor uh, from Zondervan. His book, however, is published by Erdman's here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So we welcome Robert Hudson. Hello, Robert. Hello, Fred. Thank you. When we ended last week, we were talking about the year 1966, which is a part of your title. For anyone who wasn't with us last week, we don't want to recap the whole show, but let's let's talk about that year. Why is 1966 such a perilous year? Perilous year because Thomas Merton um, had a spinal fusion operation in March of that year. And at the hospital, he met a student nurse, and they fell in love. Now, of course, this, for a celibate monk, uh, was a major crisis. He could have lost his vocation. For Bob Dylan, it was a crisis because he was at the end of a very exhausting tour, sometimes referred to as the amphetamine tour. Um, He was seriously drug addicted and uh, really could not go on any further. And he had his motorcycle accident on July 31st of 1966, and he um, was facing as well one of the biggest crises in his life. And with that, where was their redemption? What what happened to both of them in the ensuing years? And, and of course, Merton only had two more years left, am I correct? Right. That is, that's a huge question. Merton uh, did break up with this uh, woman by the end of 1966. Uh, he went on to continue his writing on social issues. And, of course, famously in 1968, he went to the East. Uh, he traveled to Japan and Singapore and uh, most especially Thailand, where he died in Bangkok. Um, he had a chance to meet the Dalai Lama, and he was very impressed. He was attending in Bangkok a um, a conference of um, Catholic monks from the West and Catholic monks from the East, as well as Buddhist monks, uh, kind of a conclave where they discussed issues they had in common. Uh, this was probably the most formative experience in Thomas Merton's life, and it was at the end of his life. Um Dylan um, ended up finding, I think, his his redemption through continuing with the music and going through, as you mentioned last week, his many phases. He went through his country-western phase and kind of his, oh, California phase uh, with uh, Blood on the Tracks and Desire, um, um, where he was living in Malibu. And then, of course, his evangelical phase and then his many post-evangelical phases. <laughs> So I think he found a redemption simply in uh, continuing the work that he had started, finding new directions. 
You know what made me a freak of nature? Do you know what album I really enjoyed? Tell me. Self-Portrait. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I, I frequently tell people, they ask me what my favorite Dylan album is. I say, you know, I'm an indiscriminate Dylan fan. I love the good stuff, and I love the bad stuff. And I maybe love especially the bad stuff. Um, I love it all. Um, I really I really don't pick and choose. Uh, but Self-Portrait is... Uh, an amazing album. I think if you look at it from a creative uh, creative artist's perspective, Self-Portrait was an amazing example of Dylan's process. And by that I mean when Dylan gets stuck creatively, he goes back to the music that he loved when he was younger. He has done this over and over again in his life. So um, you can hear the quality of the songwriting on uh, uh, Nashville skyline waning a little bit. There are some great songs there, but it's a little thin as far as the richness of some of the albums that came before it, John Wesley Harding and Blonde on Blonde. And so I think he wanted to reproduce what he had done in 1967 with the famous basement tapes with the band, which was they just went through a lot of the old classics, rockabilly numbers and country classics and folk songs. And uh, I think Dylan, with Self-Portrait, wanted to reproduce that. He's trying to find his inspiration again. I think it's a fascinating album because he is searching for the muse in that album. Um, and then, of course, he goes on uh, after that. Uh, within a few years, he does Planet Waves, uh, Blood on the Tracks, and Desire, which are three of his great, great albums. Absolutely. Just just remarkable stuff. Uh, and... As, as we said last week, and you just alluded to it a couple of minutes ago, he reinvents himself over and over again, and it, he just seems to be the Dylan we need at the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, talking about that creative process, he's going through that right now. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to any of his Sinatra albums. He's done five yes. discs worth. That's uh, two single albums and a triple album, five discs worth of covers of Sinatra songs over the last couple of years. I think it's another creative. He's going back to the music that he loved when he was younger, that he heard when he was a teenager on the pop stations. And uh, I would not be surprised if he doesn't come out with something amazing and uh, creative uh, after this searching for the muse again. You, you, uh, you kind of surprised me. You know, we, we grow up with all of these myths, you know, that we just assume are true because we read it once in, 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 when we were 13. And it's hard to dislodge that, that, that kind of information. You say that Robert Zimmerman did not necessarily choose the name Dylan from Dylan Thomas. Is, is, is that, what do we know about that? There's a lot of debate. I, I think ultimately he probably did uh, think of Dylan Thomas. He claimed, of course, on various occasions that it uh, was for an uncle called Dylan. Of course, the records show that he had no uncle named Dylan. And I think at one point he probably jokingly said that he named himself for Matt Dylan. Again, I think it's uh, <laughs> some of, uh, of Gunsmoke fame. Yes. I think it's more of Dylan's uh, intentional obfuscation uh, that he just likes to confuse things. <laughs> um, now, I did, I think one interesting study, um, you know, he has in two instances that I can think of borrowed lines from the poems of Dylan Thomas. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was quite familiar with Dylan Thomas's poetry. You Speaking of such, 
you say that uh, it's fairly understood that Thomas Merton appears in two of Dylan's songs. Am I correct? Oh, um, there really is no evidence that Bob Dylan was aware of Thomas Merton whatsoever. Um, and what I was referring to there was um, in two of Dylan's songs, uh, you think of Gates of Eden, where he refers to utopian hermit monks sitting side saddle on the golden calf, one of Dylan's great lines. Um, I can't help but feel, this is just a gut feeling, nobody can prove it, uh, but I can't help but feel that uh, utopian hermit monk, Dylan had to have had Merton rattling around in the back of his brain somewhere. Um, Two of Dylan's early women friends, uh, Susie Rotolo in Greenwich Village, was an anti-war activist and was probably aware of Merton's anti-war writings, as were a lot of the Greenwich Village people. Merton, in fact, in 1962, published a famous poem called The Original Child Bomb, which I think is one of the most stunning anti-war, anti-nuke poems ever written, The Original Child Bomb. And I can't help but feel that Susie Rotolo would have been familiar with that. And, of course, Joan Baez, who we know read the poetry of Thomas Merton and was familiar with it. And so you can't help but feel that she might have shared some of that with Bob Dylan as well. But there's no proof. I've read, uh, I've scanned on the computer more than 1,300 pages of interviews, every public statement Bob Dylan ever made on a huge, massive website um, called Every Mind-Polluting Word, uh, if you're interested in looking for every interview Dylan ever gave. And he nowhere mentions the the name Thomas Merton. Really? Yeah. You know, the very first thing I ever read of Thomas Merton was a, a foreword or a preface to the Bhagavad Gita that Swami Bhaktivedanta Swami, Swami Bhaktivedanta Prabhupada, the head of the uh, Hare Krishna movement, published in the late 60s. Are you familiar with that? I am not familiar with that. What was that like? That must have been very interesting. Oh, it really, it really <laughs> was. Uh, he refers to, uh, it, there, there are three, again, I don't know if you call them prefaces or introductions or what, but there were three of them. I forget who the third one was, but the first one was uh, Thomas Merton, huh. and the second one was Allen Ginsberg. And I was just 15 years old, and it sent me to the moon. That is fascinating. <laughs> so, so. Well, you have figures like uh, the Dalai Lama, um, who was not particularly impressed with Christianity, but when he met Merton, he said that Merton, for the first time... Um, for the first time, the Dalai Lama understood what a Christian was after he met Merton, which I thought was a, an interesting statement. And, of course, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, I'm a great admirer of his writing as well, um, Thich Nhat Hanh really detested Catholics and uh, because of what they had done in French Vietnam during the 50s. Yes. And, uh, again, Merton um, convinced him that there were Catholics that were willing to work with him and by his side. You mentioned in the book something I never knew, that Merton had a therapist. Do we know anything about that relationship, about why he was under therapy Did in his journal? Obviously, we will know nothing from the therapist, but from, from Merton himself, do we know anything about uh, what he was dealing with and how the therapy went? That's a very good question. 
From the journals, we know that the therapist was a general therapist for the community, for monks that needed it. And you get the impression that there were a lot of monks. That's a very hard life. It's a very difficult life, the monastic life, the discipline. So I think uh, James Weigel, who was uh, Merton's psychiatrist, um, was probably pretty popular in the monastery. The details of their relationship, I don't remember a lot of uh, details, uh, but I know Merton called on him particularly during this phase when he was having the affair with the student nurse. The psychiatrist, James Weigel, um, recommended that Merton break it off. Merton refused to break off the relationship uh, for many months, uh, and I think it really strained the relationship with, the, uh, with James Weigel. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Robert Hudson. He is the author of The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. Thomas Merton came to fame with his book, Seven Story Mountain. And you indicated in the book, you didn't indicate, you came out and said that the early drafts were censored by the Catholic Church. And I'm curious, are those drafts available? That would be interesting. I have not asked anybody at the Thomas Merton Archive at Bellarmine University in Louisville whether those drafts are available. I have the feeling they were destroyed. Um, it's certain that the Catholic censors took out about a third of the original manuscript because Merton was too honest about his relationships, particularly with women, before he entered the monastery. Like Augustine, he fathered a child out of wedlock uh, when he was still in college. Um, and I think his honesty about that relationship um, probably rubbed the censors the wrong way. They also recommended that he uh, delay publishing the book and that he find a, um, a writing teacher to teach him how to, to teach him grammar. He did them one better by forming a relationship with uh, Evelyn Waugh, the great English novelist. Mm -hmm who became his uh, writing mentor and his editor for the English edition of Seven Story Mountain. And I, am I correct that it, it's in this book that you say that we never, we never know who that child was whom he fathered? So that, that person, the, the offspring of Thomas Burton, could very well be alive today. It could be. The thought is that... Uh, uh, one of Merton's friends, I believe, I'm not sure where this information comes from, is fairly certain that the uh, girlfriend and the child died during the Blitz, uh, during the war. Oh. So they they may be long deceased. I see. And the, the, the Merton of Seven Story Mountain and the Merton of, of the 1960s seem to be tremendously different yeah, people. Yeah, they really are. Did Merton write anything where he actually, I don't want to say apologized, unless in fact he did, but, but really tried to set the public straight in terms of this is who I was, and, and uh, I hope to God you're not taking all of this too terribly seriously, and really you should kind of take a look at me now. Is there anything like that? He didn't publish anything that I can think of uh, among his 
books during his lifetime, but that kind of sentiment is uh, runs throughout his journals. He uh, really distanced himself from Seven Story Mountain uh, really by the late 50s. His revelation on the streets of Louisville, where he realized that he felt in solidarity with the entire world, changed his, the direction of his writing. Before then, he pretty much felt that Monastic solitude, contemplation, and prayer were the answers to all questions. After his revelation in Louisville, he became much more concerned about the state of the world and trying to figure out uh, what he could do about it. Now, of course, he, in writing his uh, socially activist material, his books at that time, he ran afoul of a lot of the Catholic uh, clergy uh, who declared that he was uh, anti-Catholic, and they even banned uh, his writing for a time. Um, that's that's uh, kind of a fascinating story because he uh, was told by the head of the Trappist um, order that he could no longer write on anti-war and anti-nuke topics because it was upsetting too many of the conservatives in the Catholic Church. But it wasn't anti-Catholic. No, not theologically. Not really at all. In fact, it was it was uh, extremely Catholic and very traditional uh, theology. Um, so Merton decided that he didn't have to stop publishing; uh, that he had to stop publishing, but he couldn't. He did not want to stop writing. So he started kind of a Samistat series of letters to friends and uh, well-placed people, gatekeepers. Um, about those issues. So he kept writing, mimeographing these letters and sending them off privately to people, including Ethel Kennedy. In his letter to Ethel Kennedy, I think he significantly says um, that he admires President Kennedy, uh, her brother-in-law. This is during Kennedy's life? This is during Kennedy's life in uh, 63, uh, 62, I'm sorry. And uh, he says that, uh, Thomas Merton says in this letter to Ethel Kennedy that ultimately... The Russians are not our enemy. War itself is our enemy. It's fairly certain that she passed that letter on to President Kennedy. And this was just uh, literally months, uh, if not weeks, before the Cuban Missile Crisis. And one can't help but wonder how much effect uh, a major Catholic theologian like Merton would have had on John F. Kennedy and his decisions during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Also, during that same year, uh, Pope John Paul, uh, Pope John Twenty-Third. Um, issued finally the Terrace in Pachem, the Peace on Earth encyclical, in which he officially declared that the Catholic Church could no longer support war of any kind in a nuclear age, and that the Catholic Church was officially becoming a peace church. Uh, again, and this is uh, documented, um, Pope John was quite influenced by Merton's writings on war and uh, anti-nuclearization. So uh, ultimately, even though he was not allowed to publish, his writings had a tremendous influence and uh, really changed the Catholic Church and maybe even the direction of the world. So a monk living alone in the middle of Kentucky actually can affect the entire world, uh, I think is, is an amazing, amazing fact. At the same time, of course, he was being investigated by the FBI, um, which I think is one of the most fascinating things about Merton, is that a monk living alone writing in uh, the middle of Kentucky could be considered a threat to national security and investigated by the FBI. Do we have those records out now? Uh, we do, yes. Most of them were because he corresponded. Uh, they started in the 50s because he corresponded with Soviet writer uh, Boris Pasternak, 
of uh, Dr. Zhivago fame. Um, but of course, he was friends with the Berrigans, and Merton helped found the Catholic Peace Fellowship, which was one of the leading anti-war organizations in the 60s. It, uh, one of the shames, there are many, many shames we could think, oh, if only he'd lived to blank, if only he'd lived to see this. But if he would, of course, if he was alive today, would have been able to see uh, that he, well, he was right and that historians have put him on the right side of history. Yeah, they really have. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So you, you've been both a Merton fan and a Dylan fan for many, many years. Did one lead you to the other, or did it just so happen that at some point you realized, hey, wait a minute, I like Merton, I like Dylan. Hey, there's, there's a confluence here. What happened? I was, if you can picture me uh, back in the, the late 60s, you were there, um, sitting in a basement with friends, uh, you know, with the black lights and the flashing <laughs> yeah. lights to the music and listening to Dylan bootleg albums at that point. I was vaguely aware of Merton as a poet who was loosely linked with a lot of the beat poets. He was in many of those same anthologies that I was reading because I loved the beat poets at that time. But I really didn't start... So I actually considered Merton uh, as a poet before I considered him a spiritual figure. Um, by graduate school, uh, the late 70s, 10 years later, I became more aware of Thomas Merton. I was going through a spiritual revival in my life. Um, I think Merton in some ways kind of rescued me from a more conservative brand of evangelicalism. Um, I liked his uh, openness to other world religions. I liked his uh, spiritual approach. Um, so I began reading a lot of Merton uh, in graduate school. It wasn't until the 90s, really, uh, when Merton's journals were finally released, 25 years after his death, according to his will, that I discovered uh, constant references to Dylan in the journals. So I started looking at the letters, his literary essays, and his poetry, and found that uh, Dylan, for that phase of 1966, was a major, major influence. Being an evangelical and being a, a fan of both Merton and uh, and Dylan, so when you when you're in in the group and you're in, in your your mix of uh, of friends and family, uh, do you find yourself? Uh, in awkward spaces at mocktail parties? <laughs> no, I, seriously, that's, that's a terrible stereotype. I'm, I'm kidding. But, but really, if, if you were to paint someone as a Merton and a, a Dylan fan, and if you were just to sort of use, use your stereo, stereotypes to come up with a person, you probably wouldn't come up with someone who identifies as an evangelical Christian. Right. Right. Well, I don't, I don't think I identify—I haven't identified as an evangelical Christian for a long time, though I still uh, consider myself a, a Christ follower. But I think uh, what you're getting at is kind of epitomized by uh, two encounters I had back in graduate school. One, one woman uh, saw me reading Thomas Merton's No Man is an Island, and uh, she was an evangelical, and said, what in the world are you reading that for? She was very threatened by the idea of a Catholic monk. The second woman, uh, I was dating her, and uh, she was very conservative, and uh, she finally said, uh, you know, if we're going to get serious, if we're going to get married, you're going to have to choose between me and your Bob Dylan obsession. <laughs> and I chose Dylan, and I never looked back. <laughs> you're not working on Maggie's farm. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it says here in your, your bio, hang on a second here, let me see this. 
that you're a member of the International Thomas Merton Society. What is that? It is an organization of uh, scholars that have annual conferences. Uh, it's based at Bellarmine University in Louisville, mm-hmm. and uh, it's simply a, a gathering of people that are interested in Thomas Merton. There is a West Michigan chapter which meets at Baker Bookhouse on Wednesday nights, I think the second Wednesday of uh, every month, and I'm a frequent attender of that. Uh, Bill and Beth Murphy are the uh, founders of that org- of that group. It's an offshoot of the International Society, so it's... Oh, that's nice to know. Again, it's, it's at Baker Bookhouse. Yep. 7, 7 p.m., uh, the second Wednesday night of uh, every month. Do you happen to know Father Patrick Collins? He, I think he attends there. Yes, he does. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, Father Collins is... Uh, Sat in your chair more than a few times in okay, our yeah. common threads. He's oh, a good he's friend. A brilliant and, uh, man. Yes, and brings a tremendous insight to uh, contemporary Christianity, the Catholic Church in particular. He so, really does. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And you, you mentioned that you've got another book in the works. I do. I'm currently writing a book on writing poetry. So that's one of my other avocations is uh, poetry writing, which I've done since high school as well. So uh, it's called The Art of the Almost Said, uh, A Guide to Writing Poetry, uh, which won't be released until next year, but it's from Bold Vision Books in Texas. Ah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, Robert, thank you so much for being with us this week and last week as well. It's uh, been a lot of fun and very informative. Thank you, Fred. All I can say is you are good at what you do, so thank you so much for having me here. My pleasure. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. My guest this week, last week as well, Robert Hudson, the author of The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and The Perilous Summer of 1966. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU-FM for another episode of Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads